Your Locked On Senators, your daily podcast on the Ottawa Senators. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome inside the Locked On Senators podcast. I'm Ross Levitan in the heart of enemy territory, downtown Toronto, alongside Brandon Piller up in Collingwood. And today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar is a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON and you'll get $10 off your first order. Coming up, we've got Tony Ferrari, now friend of the show, recurring guest. Get his take on the Sens draft hall, how he feels about the offseason. But really, it's only getting juicier because Connor Brown is still unsigned. The only RFA with an arbitration hearing this week who has not settled. Still time to do so, but the sides are pretty far apart. We'll tell you just how far apart. And we've got a first career SHL goal. We'll tell you who got on the board and more. This is the Locked On Senators podcast, your team every day. Today is Wednesday, October 21st, and Pilsy, I had some fun on Twitter yesterday at Send Central. Yeah, the, the rumor mills started right here on the Locked On Senators podcast. And look, I, w- I want you to make your, your case first, and then we'll dissect it. Well, let's at least let everyone know what we're talking about. If you don't follow us at Send Central on Twitter, Jonathan Taves. I would love to have him as an Ottawa Senator. And that coming out of thin air, not quite. The Chicago Blackhawks went the route of the New York Rangers penning a letter to all their fans saying, look, we're going to rebuild. Funny if they did though now though, eh, Pilsy? They've had two top 10 picks in the last three years. So they've kind of been rebuilding already. But where this is coming from is the obvious departure of both Brent Seabrook and Corey Crawford, two of the, the core four who have been there. Well, no, Seabrook's the- still there. Is he? They- I thought they bought him out. Who's the other guy then? Oh, maybe Brandon Sad. Sad. Yeah. Yeah, even though he left, came back. Anyways, he was there for all three. I think Seabrook's on long-term injury reserve. Fair enough. Corey Crawford, upset he didn't get his contract. And that made us think, what could we poach from Stan Bowman? So I threw out on Twitter, what would it cost to get Jonathan Taves? But Pills, you have no interest. I mean, no interest isn't totally right. I just... I don't have a lot of interest. Depend that's it's all depending on the cost. Like if you can get a guy like Jonathan Taves at a cost that works for the Senators, the Senators have so many expendable assets. And the Blackhawks, for a rebuilding team, sure they have a lot of young talent, but they don't have a lot of draft capital. Pretty much all their picks, except I think they're missing a third round pick of their own for the upcoming draft. The only reason why Jonathan Taves doesn't really make sense for me right now is this is a move you make if you think you have a three-year win-now window. And I don't think the Senators are quite in their win-now window yet. And I have faith in this rebuild. I have faith in the guys coming up. If you give them time, uh, keep drafting, keep developing, and build through your own core, I think the Senators have what it takes to become a contending team without bringing in too many more pieces once the young guys are ready. It's still a conversation that has to be had, though. If, if you hear that Jonathan Taves is on the market, you pick up the phone and call Stan Bowman. The, the kind of overall consensus that we got from the answer was no. <laughs> and pretty much what you were saying as well. People asked me if I was high and all sorts of other things. But 
the the overall kind of consensus that he is on a downturn very exaggerated he had his best offensive season two years ago this guy was a point of game in the 2020 bubble for crying out loud don't forget this guy shut down Connor mcdavid well as well as you can beat the edmonton oilers and he was a huge reason why so you look at the cap hit ten and a half million although in real money he's already been paid his five million dollar signing bonus this season so he's making two million in salary then next year four million in signing bonus 2.9 in salary for a total of 6.9 cash same in the third year so i don't get people who are saying it's a bad contract maybe to fit it under the cap but to acquire a player of the pedigree three stanley cups two olympic gold medals center on the best world junior team of all time in 2005 and you have the makings of a pretty good player so I think that he would fit in on any team Ottawa included but I do get what you're saying that it doesn't fit the window it was more just to get the conversation rolling where a team I could see him fitting is Colorado you've got the Joe Sackett connection of two um well well-decorated Canadian centermen you look at the fact that they have that extra cap room because of the contract that Nathan McKinnon's on for the next three years at 6.3 coincidentally the same time the Taves expires. And then they have that plethora of potential when you look at Bowen Byram. Where else do you think that he could fit if he's on the move? That is the big if here. I don't know. It's it's tough to say because a lot of teams that are in that championship window, usually they have a number one center already. But I could see Taves as a number two center on a contending team could definitely work because this guy excels at even strength. And I think... I think you changed a lot of people's minds when you told them about the money situation with Taves. I think a lot of people weren't fully aware of that. So that's an interesting nugget. But if you're looking uh, Taves to the Sens, sticking on that, I don't see him waving his uh, no move clause to come to another rebuilding team when he's upset that his team is rebuilding. So there's a problem there. But yeah, the thing with Jonathan Taves is he does so many underlying things. He's good at even strength. Of the 18 goals he scored last year, only two of them weren't at even strength. So one was on a power play, one was shorthanded. So he's getting it done. He can kill penalties. And another little nugget here is Jonathan Taves, third overall draft pick. Out he's, of UND. Out of, yeah, out of UND. But I'm just trying to back myself up here, Ross. He averages 62 points a season. He's only been lower than 50 points once when the lockout shortened season, only higher than 70 points twice. Why are people so mad that I gave the same point range, 50 to 70, for third overall pick, Timmy Stutzla? Well, because of what you mentioned, that Taves brings so many other elements to his game where Stutzla is more considered an offensive dynamo. You'd like to see him put up closer to Patty Kane points where you're getting the same on the back end. And we've heard that comparison before, especially if he does project as a winger. We're clear. We'd love to see Stutzla in the middle of the ice, which lends to your comparison of comparing him to the center of that Blackhawks team. But yeah, my simple answer would be you're getting more in the defensive zone from Jonathan Taves. And otherwise, it is a good point. And you mentioned that 48 points. That was in 47 games. So you're on an 83-point pace there. Um, he's just a stud. So won't spend too much time on it because you mentioned the no move clause and all mentioned that he still owed 8 million in signing bonus over the next two years, 4 million per. And that's a a pretty hefty check for uh, huge to be cutting out on a single day. However, there's going to have to be a check signed for Connor Brown here sooner or later. What do you think is going to happen? Will they go to arbitration? We've said before on the show, 
that Cody Cece was the last one to get there. But you look around the league, everyone else is settling. Nobody wants to go into this unknown arbitrator during a pandemic. Yeah, definitely. That's that's a big deal. Like this is unprecedented times. And the the only thing I can think of is why this is taking so long is a Connor Brown and his camp have made it clear they want more than one deal. And the gap between the two numbers is very wide. And look, everyone needs to calm down, myself included. When you see the numbers, the team is always going to come in as low as possible. And the players camp is always going to come in as high as possible. And then you try to meet somewhere in the middle, right? That's how this goes. So Connor Brown uh, his camp came in at 4.8 million and the Sens came in at 2.25 million. Um, so who knows where it's going to end up? My, my guess is somewhere around the 4 million if it does go to arbitration, but they, they got to try to do everything they can to avoid arbitration here in my eyes. Well, let's look at Ilya McKay of the latest example of a player. Mm-hmm. And he is a very interesting case though. His first year in the NHL had a major injury that he missed a lot of time for. But when he was in the lineup, he was producing at a top six, more of like a top seven, I'd say. I don't want to give him top nine because more so than that. Top seven, and that's a new term. That is a new term. <laughs> eh? Maybe we'll stick with that. I don't mind it because if you're the worst player on a third line, you're probably closer to a fourth liner. But if you're the best player on a third line, like Connor Brown, we're assuming will be once the team is competitive around them, like Mikheyev's situation. But the team asked for $1 million for Mikheyev, and he asked for two point seven. So despite both of those numbers being lower than Connor Brown, they are pretty much the same in terms of difference between them. 2.4 versus 2.7 million. But he settled last night. He signs a two-year contract, and that is worth 1.65. So closer to the team than the player. Would you think if Connor Brown settles in something like that, we would see it be closer to three than four? No, I see it clo- being closer to uh, Connor Brown's uh, number. And a big thing that needs to be heard is a lot of the time when agents are going in negotiating contracts with teams, they look at comparable contracts on the team. I think uh, what Connor Brown's camp is looking at is Colin White's contract and saying, look, if you're paying Colin White this much and he's putting up these points and this, this and that, and they have all their arguments, then Connor Brown should be much closer to Colin White's contract than the 2.25 million the Sens came in at. And well, another important wrinkle too, Ross, I'll let you go in a sec, is if the arbitration comes in at higher than 4.38 million, the Sens have the option to walk away from it. They don't have to do the arbitration and they can settle on uh, an original offer made earlier to Connor Brown if that's the case. Or Connor Brown just goes to unrestricted free agency, which, which would be wild if that was the outcome here. Yeah, that would be a terrible situation. I don't think it's going to come in to a place where they can walk away. It would have to be, as you mentioned, over 4.5. However, when you compare him with with Colin White's contract, he's three years older. So he's had more of a time to establish himself. You're paying for more UFA years in Connor Brown's case, whereas with Colin White, they wanted to lock him up to not have to deal with arbitration if it was a three-year contract or or four. So they locked him up for six. It was also a show of good faith to the fan base and they needed it with not only Colin White, but with Thomas Shabbat. And you see those two long-term deals. That's more for peace of mind for like, Hey, we're actually going to keep some of these guys like please buy a Jersey so that you don't uh, have to keep changing it over and over. I know my dad's disappointed that he's got 
a, a Mark Stone outdoor game jersey, but I told him that's always going to be worthwhile, just like reading. And for the holidays, you got to check out this book. It's from a best-selling author of The Daily Stoic. Here it is. It comes the ultimate guide to Stoicism success, resilience, and virtue to accept what you cannot control and adapt to what you can. Sports teams across the country are applying this popular philosophy by using Stoicism's key idea that you control how you respond and play. You don't control what the refs and fans do or how the ball bounces. It's about you and what you did to adapt. Lives of the Stoic, the art of living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius is available now wherever books are sold. Pilsy, we got to check that one out. Yeah, that sounds like a good one. Some uh, An interesting look at the world of sports, which uh, us, us guys who like to use the eye test don't always think about the mentality behind it. Whether you're into the eye test or graphs, check out Lives of the Stoic, The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius, and it's available now wherever books are sold. All right, Pilsy, excited to get Tony Ferrari back on the show. Always love his insight. Yeah, Tony, another recurring guest. We promised you guys we're going to get all these draft uh, coverage, all these uh, knowledgeable guys on the draft before the draft to give us some hypotheticals, who they like, who they don't like. And now we're bringing them back for the second half here now that we know the draft picks and we get really detailed. Uh, with Tony, we, we really go into pretty much every pick of the first three rounds, right? Yeah, he was pretty upset about the Tyler Clevin one, but... <laughs> yeah. Hey. Well, hey, that's uh, you, you need to hear from both sides. I think a lot of people were uh, disappointed, myself included, when that's the guy they traded up to select. So it's interesting to see his take on that pick. Yeah, absolutely. Without further ado, here he is, the head of North American Scouting at Dauber Prospects, part one of our chat with Tony Ferrari. All right, we're now very pleased to welcome a recurring guest, now friend of the show. He's the head of North American Scouting at Dauber Prospects, the co-host of the excellent Dauber Draftcast, and he covers your Sens prospects over at DauberProspects.com. It's the Tony Ferrari. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Draft season is over, and now I'm back into 2021, so I'm happy to be uh, just trugging along, you know. Oh, we're definitely going to touch on 2021 at the end because I think Sens fans are all in agreement that Great moves this offseason to be in a better spot to compete, but still that 2021 draft class might be the, the last where we're looking at a real lottery pick. But let's touch on the 2020 draft. And we know that the Sens weren't everybody's favorite in terms of how they drafted. I know a lot of the analysts think that they reached on a few players. We just want to run in. We have one question on each guy. And that way we can kind of get and we'll, we'll leave Marilyn and out of this. We know we had your boy Dan Tiffany on to talk goalies. And we know we'll, we'll stick with the skaters for you. And let's start with number three overall. Awesome to see Alex Trebek make the pick of Timmy Stutzla. What's he going to bring to Ottawa? And the question everyone wants to know, is this guy playing center? I'll start with the center thing because I've, I've been pretty adamant all year that this is not only my favorite prospect in this draft, but he's been a top five prospect for me from basically October on. And, and I was one of the early people to adopt that. And personally, I see him as a really, really high-end winger, the kind of winger that like a Patrick Kane or, or Mitch Marner kind of brings to the game. A guy who really drives play from the wing and, and kind of is that dynamic presence on the line. I think he can play center if he's forced into it. Like, I look at the, the Ottawa Senators' center depth, and, and they don't really have a guy that jumps out. But if you put a guy like Tim Stutzel on, on a line with uh, Josh Norris or Logan Brown, he, he elevates their play to the point where they are true like 
elite offensive centers. So I think he's a winger personally, but this kid's got a ton of talent. He's got a ton of flash. He's, he's everything you want as, for a guy that puts butts in the seats. And, and honestly, like I said, he's been my favorite player in the draft class from the start of the year on. So I love the pick at three. For me personally, it was between him and Raymond, but I don't think he could have gone wrong either way. Yeah, I think universally what everyone says about Stutzla is he's exciting and fans are going to love him. So Sens fans, we'll take that every day of the week. Speaking of Stutzla, so he had uh, successful surgery on his hand last week. That's good news for Sens fans. Still six to eight timeline for his return. Now, do you think the Senators, if you're Pierre Dorian, do you let him play in the World Juniors or do you hold back your prized possession in fear that maybe he re-injures it uh, right before the season starts? Yeah, I actually just had a conversation with, uh, with another scout about this and, and he was kind of of the mindset that Ottawa should probably just let him, tell him to skip the World Juniors because like, the fact that he got surgery is a big deal in an injury like this because you, you can break your hand or break your arm and your forearm and, and kind of go into a cast and deal with it that way. But the fact that he had to go through surgery and deal with that, it might kind of lead to a fact that it's a little bit of a more serious injury and it might take a little longer to get to 100%. I don't see any reason, especially if Ottawa wants to bring him over to, to, to the Senators this year. Whenever the NHL season does get started up, I don't see a point in really sending him to the World Juniors. I know he's going to want to play. Of course he's going to want to play. But I, I, I talked to the uh, Adler-Mannheim press guy, and we were kind of talking a little bit about of his injury, and, and he said it wasn't anything serious it was a kind of a fluke injury that kind of just happened in practice. He kind of ran into a guy. It, it seemed like nothing at first, and he even tried to play through it from what I was told. So um, it, it was kind of one of those things where I think they realized it was a more serious injury afterwards. And because of that, I think I'd probably tell him to skip the World Juniors personally, but you know he's going to be pushing to play. He's already named, I think, the captain of that U20 yeah. team in, in terms of, the, I think they had that summer thing against Switzerland, so you know he's going to be raring to go. Playing center, by the way, which he doesn't yeah. do in Mannheim. And we were asking Craig Button about the fact, like, do you talk to the Mannheim people? And it's like, hey, we'd like him to develop as a center. Could you put him over there? But obviously it's their decision. Um, one guy we know will be playing at the World Juniors is Jake Sanderson. UND, what a great lead-up. Uh, having the bubble 11 games right into where he's going to go into Edmonton, into the bubble. Is this him being a late birthday? Could we see him jump up these prospect charts? Like yeah. being a late birthday and, and not having as much being able to be seen. He's, he wasn't already playing college. Like, is he the kind of guy that can show so much more this year? I think there really is. Like towards the end, I was early in the season. I was a guy that was like, oh man, stop trying to put Jake Sanderson in the Jamie Drysdale category. They're just not the same level of prospect. In the more, and I'm close to Plymouth, so I go there all the time, and I see the NTDB play a ton. But the the thing with him was, it was just every game it seemed he was getting better. And by the end of the year, there I was one of the few people that were like, you know what, he might be ahead of Drysdale. And and the fact that he got drafted ahead of Drysdale was zero shock to me. On my rankings, I had them at six and seven, and they were flip flopping all the time. Like you could ask me one day who who I liked, and it'd be a different answer from the next day. So. I love Jake Sanderson's game. I think he's the most projectable defenseman in this entire draft class. Like I'm more sure that he's going to be a top four NHL defenseman than I am with Jamie Drysdale. And I think Jake Sanderson's just got so much runway still. He's so young and he's going to UND who's notoriously good at developing defensemen. So I think that's a great spot for him. Ottawa's not going to be in a rush to necessarily bring him on because their defensive pipeline's pretty good. So this kid is going to have time if he needs it, but I, I think he's probably going to be a one and done at UND if, maybe two years, but I don't see him lasting any longer than that. 
So the Sens had uh, t- two of their highest picks in franchise history in three and five. Um, where do you see these guys ranking on the Sens prospect list now in Stutzla and Sanderson? Are they immediately jumping to one and two? Uh, Stutzla, definitely. I think Stutzla is your top prospect. It's pretty pretty solidly that, that way for him. As for, for Jake Sanderson, I think he's a little bit more of a question mark for uh, – your top prospect because if you look at the play like Eric Brandstrom, he's definitely got a lot more offensive upside and, and, and some, uh, some more upside in areas that Jake Sanderson necessarily doesn't. But I think Jake Sanderson is definitely the, the second most likely surefire prospect in this draft or in this prospect pool. Like I think this kid's going to be a top pair defenseman. So if I was doing the, the, the rankings now, I'd probably have him at number two. Um, but there's kind of that he's in that group of guys right after Stutzla. That's kind of a, a bigger group of, uh, various prospects yeah it seems like they're doing well at knowing what their system in is and adding strengths like you have your offensive defenseman in Shabbat and Brandstrom and Jake Sanderson not necessarily the defenseman's going to put up a lot of points but what he does in transition similar to Bernard Docker another UND defenseman they're just your reliable help out stay home defenseman and sense fans obviously love that style based on the reception that Mark Mathot got over all of his years in Ottawa. Now we're talking about rankings in the prospect system. How often is a first rounder barely a top 10 uh, right away? Like Ridley Gregg, 28th overall. He's another late birthday as well. And you look at how his offense was created after Christmas. I saw he went three games without a point towards that Christmas holiday. And then he comes back. He's well over a point per game, but it's really the peskiness of his game. That's really going to make him into an NHL. Or you think that you think that he also will be a, a top nine, let's say, forward? I think he'll be a top nine forward for sure. And I, I think the, the pick of Greg is, was a weird one for the Senators because in some, some realms, people loved it. Like I've I seen a few people that were like doing redrafts and they, they were like, oh, Greg's the exact pick I would have taken there. So it makes a ton of sense. For me, I probably would have taken a little bit of a higher swing on upside, but this guy's an NHL player. And, and I don't think there's any question about that. Like this kid is going to be a top nine, pesky, annoying forward who's going to be able to kind of I think he has some positional versatility. He can kind of play everywhere and he can kind of play up and down the lineup. If he's on your first line, he's going to be that Zach Hyman annoying pest that is, has the skill level to get the higher skill level players, the puck. If, if he's playing on your second and third line, he's going to be able to bring that a bit of that jam. And despite he's not the biggest player, he's, he's more than willing to go in the corners and battle and just be a jerk in, in the corners and, and get under the opponent's skin. So I, I like the pick. Like I said, it probably wasn't the pick I would have made. I probably would have swung for a little bit of higher upside, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that this guy is maybe even a top seven or eight prospect in the pool. But there, it's that crazy group at that probably about five to five to fifteen for the Ottawa Senators prospects. That is just you can interchange them almost however you feel like based on your stylistic preference almost. Well, going into the draft and just like at the pick, we're like, all right, here's our best available, and then seeing Brisson and then Bork go in the next two picks, you're like, oh man, those are the guys who exactly wanted. But at the same time, it's just such a sense pick, like just more yeah. safe. And I know this is like a, a right on comparable, but if he could be 2015-16 Zach Smith, the year where he had 26 goals, I think I would love that. I think Pillsy would too. Yeah, that's definitely the Sens, Sens style of player. Now, I, I want to go on to the next pick, a very different style of player in Robbie Yarventi. Now, we've been able to see what he can do effectively. What are the things that Yarventi needs to work on to kind of get to more of a pro level? We know he can score. We know he's got that offense, but what are the things he still needs some time on? 
Yeah, Yarvinty's an interesting prospect, and he was a guy that I think when we did our our draft rankings video for Dobbers Draftcast, we we were like, I ended up having to like edit out most of what we talked about with him because there was some heated debate on this kid. Like the skill level's there. There's no question that he's a high end goal scorer. He's a good player offensively. He's got all the talent in the world. My biggest problem, and I think Yoki Yoki Nevalainen's biggest problem, the director of European scouting, was why doesn't he try ever? Like this kid has so much talent. He he could be a top 15 talent in this draft realistically. Like there's such a package there and he just doesn't give a shit most of the time. And that's such a problem with him, man. And we've seen times this year, especially early in the year, there has been more effort put into his game and he's, he's shown the, the, the willingness to, to try. I think some of his, his scoring totals have been inflated a little bit with some secondary assists, but yeah. there's no doubt that he's, he's driving play and he's, he's producing offensively. So you, you kind of look at him and go, man, if this kid realizes what he could become, he could be a really special player and a, a huge steal for the Sens in the second round. And that Ilvis team, they're just getting stronger. You see, they added Barrett Hayton as well. And um, I was a little surprised with, with Lassie Thompson, which I want to ask you about later on. But let's stick with rolling through because this next pick, speaking defenseman, Lassie Thompson, a little bit more surefire than Tyler Clevin. People thought they went off the board and trading up to get him. I guess your thoughts on, on the pick. Uh, do I have to? Yeah, this you is, have to. We can't oh, all man. be roses here. We have to I know. In, in, it. My biggest problem with Clevin is he was a guy that, if I was an NHL general manager, I'd be like, he's a guy I look at in the fifth, sixth, seventh round. Wow. Um, he's got the size. He's got the skating. And, and that's it. Like there's the, he needs to learn to play the game. And he, he has, he hasn't been playing at a high level as long as a lot of the prospects at this age range. So that does factor in. And, and there is a little bit more runway maybe in terms of development there, but this kid's a project. Like you're going to need to work on, on, a lot with him in terms of his timing of and his gaps and one of the things that he that I th- I've had a lot of scouts and even coaches tell me is that the, oh this kid he's just a freight train on the ice willing to just step into the neutral zone and crush a guy and, and I'm like yeah yeah that's fine but then there's a three on one behind him then he's not producing anything and it, that hit is great on a highlight reel when you isolate the cam on him but then you don't if you come out a little wider you get the wider span and there's a lot going on that doesn't doesn't go well for him so one of the stats that kind of stuck out to me was that when you look at passes leaving the defensive zone, Drew Camesso, the national team's goaltender, had a higher passing percentage than Tyler Clevin. And, and when I look at a player like that, I go, for me, I have zero willingness to, to spend a pick that high. And the fact that they traded up, I, I've said it before, I think on this podcast, but I am a Leafs fan at heart and I, I try to be as unbiased as I can, but Man, Topi Nimala in or Ronnie Hirvin in, in the center's prospect pool would look a lot better than Tyler Clevin. Either of them. So, but neither go to UND. Uh, that, that's a, that is a problem because the Senators <laughs> just basically use that as a farm system. So I think the optics around the pick with, with trading up were a lot worse than the actual pick itself. I, I myself, like I said, I'm not a Tyler Clevin fan, but there are people that really are. And there is a developmental project. Like I've said this about Shakir before, but he's a ball of clay. And you have to find that ball of clay. The problem is you don't have a map and he's in a cave somewhere. So you have to get to that, that ball of clay. Get there and you can develop it, but you got to get there. Well, the good news is that he's probably ninth on the Sens D prospect yeah. ranking. So there's no rush. And it's not like Jake Sanderson where he'll be one or done or two years. I yeah. see it at least going through his junior season. And with Brad Berry, and you mentioned UND developing defensemen in the past. And we see it with Christian Willandon, who we're hoping to take a big step this year that maybe Tyler Clevin can be the same way. I mean, it was, what, the Sens' sixth pick in the draft or, yeah. already, and we're in the middle of second round. But then they started changing their philosophy and taking guys who are overagers 
who will step into the AHL right away. And they took a big swing, and I say that physically as well. Igor Sokolov, 6'4". He, he was listed at like 230. I know he's down a little bit now, but he was playing big, and he put up a big number of goals. Can he realistically step into an AHL role and continue his offensive success? I, I think he certainly can. He can step into an AHL role tomorrow and be a, an AHL contributor. Um, his skating is the biggest issue with him. He, he needs to figure it out. And honestly, losing a little bit of weight might help because that, that was a big boy. Uh, there was one point this year where I think I seen something where he was listed at 6'4", 260. And I'm like, God damn, this dude's playing offensive line in the NFL. What is yeah. what's going on here? Like this, he has all the, sh- the shooting talent in the world. I think he's got underrated playmaking ability as well. I, I think his offensive game is, is pretty good. He was a guy that when I seen the pick, I'm like, Ugh, why would you pick him this early? As I'm like going through it and I'm like, I probably would have picked him around there too. Like you take the swing, especially with how many picks the Senators had. I'm more than willing for them to take swings. And, and I've always been the guy that says, take your swing. If you like a guy, take it. As long as the upside is there and there's justification for maybe this guy is a prospect that develops into a top 25 prospect or a top 30 prospect in, in this draft class, then take that swing, especially in the second, third, fourth rounds. I, I don't see this as a bad pick necessarily. Like I said, maybe not the pick I would have made, but I think it's a good pick. And Sokolov is a, an interesting player because he's shown some, some character stuff that people have really started to like. Like He stuck around when the pandemic happened and he didn't go back to Russia. He did a lot of work in the community in Cape Breton and, and tried to kind of bring bring some things and make the best of a bad situation. And I he think delivering the, groceries all yeah. over town. And, and I think the Senators are an organization that values that. Like, we look at all their picks, and they value the character. And the fact that Sokolov is an offensive juggernaut with a shot, and he's a really good offensive player, is just a bonus on top of the character with him. And like I said, maybe not the pick I would have made, and maybe a little bit early for an overager, in my opinion. But I think he's a good prospect, and he goes right into the system as a, a player that steps right into the AHL. So you mentioned uh, he's a kind of high character guy and the Sens put a lot of value in that. And they also put a lot of value in, we joked about it earlier, but drafting guys at UND and drafting guys who are friends. We all know that Josh Norris is Brady Kachuk's best friend. What what do you think the value to that is as an organization in a whole? Like, Do you think there's really a big boost for getting these guys that are going to be developing from a young age together, building friendships. They're going to know each other. Like, is that kind of overdone by the senators or do you think there's actually something to that? And well, there's also in Cape Breton, uh, you mentioned Sokolov and I think that's why you transitioned that he was Drake Batherson's billet brother two and a half years ago. Like the connections just run deep or is that just hockey in general? I feel like everything's three degrees. It is a little bit of hockey in general. Like everyone knows everyone in hockey for the most part. And I th- but I think there is value in it. Um, and my, my philosophy on, on character guys has always been, okay, if I have three guys in the same range, like I, I, I've kind of gotten away from ranking, like hard ranking guys over the last little while. And I've gone more to a, like a tiering system because I think that's more how NHL teams do it from everything I've talked to is, is you get, okay, you know, you're picking in the, the three to five range. So who are, the, who are the three guys I'd like at three? Who are the three guys I'd like at five? And you go from there. And I think character is a really interesting thing because teams treat it differently. Um, you look at a team like uh, Arizona this year, they, they preach character, they preach character. And then they went in their first pick was Malcolm Miller or Malcolm Miller. Yeah. UND guy, but he had some off ice issues. Yeah. And that was the thing is, is preach character. And then they drafted him and I'm like, okay, like his talent is there. Like that's worth it. But you didn't follow through with the character side that you guys have been preaching. It was kind of was a weird situation. Whereas with the auto centers, they've been consistent on, on getting guys with good character. For me, it's more of a tie breaking factor than, but it, it's a factor that I think a lot of teams have realized that you need good guys in the room because if you get a couple assholes, it really ha- starts to hamper the locker room. 
Thanks once again to Tony Ferrari for taking the time with us. And part two coming tomorrow here on the Locked On Senators podcast. Yeah, when when you get a guest like Tony, the draft knowledge that he has, that you don't do a one part or similar to Button. They just have they have so much information and uh, insight that we're not really aware of, or a different angle at the stuff we do know. That you got to get it all in there, and we love chatting about Tony. That's for sure. And we also love Built Bar here on the Locked On Senators podcast. You guys know Built Bar. If you've been listening for a while, you know this is one of our favorite products. It's the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. 16 amazing flavors, 8 chocolate nut flavors, and 8 chocolate nut-free flavors. If uh, Depending on what uh, flavors you like, how much protein you're trying to get in there, the bars are covered in 100% chocolate. So all you chocolate lovers, you're getting your chocolate. And I would say the best part about Built Bars is their texture. The soft and easy to chew is so satisfying, but let's get to all the other good parts of Built Bar. Built Bar is great for the health conscious person. Lose or maintain weight while indulging in a delicious treat. Bars are low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber. Ross, usually we do Pilsy's pick of the week. Let's hear Ross's reward of the week. What flavor of Built Bar are you highlighting this time? Oh, we'll go with mint brownie. I'm a big mint chocolate combo and brownie. The fudge in it just makes it even better. I love how it has 15 grams of protein. I love that it's low in sugar though, just four grams and 110 calories. I usually take it right after a run. And the worst thing you do after you go exercise, you feel like even though you're getting your protein bar, which is important after you work out, you're adding so many calories too. You almost feel what's the point? Not with Built Bar, not with mint brownie. Roscoe's reward of the week. Ooh, delicious. Guys, Built Bar, the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON and you'll get $10 off your first order. That's BuiltBar.com, promo code LOCKEDON for $10 off your first order. All right, Pilsy, still lots to get into all off-season long here on the Locked On Senators podcast, your daily home for the Ottawa and Belleville Senators. Players from both those teams made it to Corey Pronman's rankings, but before we get to that, we're likely, well, is it certain now? Pierre Lebrun reported on Insider Training that the seven teams not invited to the return to play looks like they're going to get at least a couple extra weeks of training camp. Yeah, and something had to be done here. Like, Ross, what's, what's the number for the last time, how many days the Sens have played a game? Let me just pull it up here on our lineup. 224 days since that night in Los Angeles. That is just ridiculous. Wow. So, yeah, you can't have these guys sitting on the bench for that long getting getting rusty, especially when you're a rebuilding team that has young developing prospects. And so we know they're working tentatively. The deal is done. They're going to hash out the details of when that early training camp will happen. And the teams and players, I, I don't know about the players, but the teams have a choice whether they want to start that early or not. So that's up to them. I think most teams will be taking advantage of that. And a couple other interesting notes is they were also talking about more preseason games for those seven teams, which I think is definitely fair. That's not final, but I think they're going to work that out. And then looking at the AHL start date, it was it's set for December 4th now. I think everyone can say pretty confidently that that's not going to happen. But a lot of um, GMs, want the AHL to start before the NHL this season to get those guys back in the rhythm and kind of get another look at them playing competitive games. So I think it will be sometime in December or at least early January because now it looks like the NHL is moving 
their start date to uh, mid or at least late January. So that'll be interesting. Belleville fans, keep an eye on that because this is going to be a stacked Belleville roster. Yeah, which is one of the reasons I don't love the, the people who are doing the mock lineups for Ottawa and including all of the Belleville guys. Like, this is an important year for Belleville as well, and we need to leave some talent there to continue to develop. And there's no such thing as over-marinating. Just look, I think I referenced this before, the Syracuse crunch and how many of their alumni ended up playing on that Tampa Bay team that finally won their Stanley Cup this bubble season. Pilsy, we got to finish off. We touched on it yesterday, and we're going to get our list tomorrow. But Corey Pronman, you love to see Ottawa ranked so high behind only the New York Rangers and New Jersey Devils in their organizational under-23 with draft talent included. So their list goes Kachuk, Stutzla, Norris, Formanton, Batherson, Jake Sanderson, Eric Branstrom all the way down at seven, Ridley Gregg at eight, Logan Brown, nine, Shane Pinto at 10, and then Jacob Bernard Docker, 11, Igor Sokolov, 12, Robbie Yarventi at 13, and finally, Lassie Thompson at 14. Are you having any gripes with the order that Pronman listed these prospects? Absolutely. I, I think the order is very different than what I would have, but not going to spoil it for tomorrow's episode. I'm just going to give my three quick qualms that I have with the list. And look, I feel bad for the athletic guys. We're getting mad at their list, but thank you for giving us lists to get mad at. It's uh, nothing personal. We just have a different look at it, obviously, as as sends podcasters. We, we know these guys in and out. So my first qualms are Eric Brandstrom should not be that far down the list. Ridley Gregg should not be that high up the list. And a massive massive snub of Vitalia Bramov not even cracking the top 14. I would say those are my three biggest issues with this list. Well, Vitaly maybe doesn't qualify. I think he's turning 23 this year. So he's, I'm, he was 22 or uh, younger at the date of September 15th or whatever it was. Pronman, okay, so uh, he's snubbed. Up. Yeah, that snub. is a huge snub. He would crack the top 10 for me, let alone the top 14. For me, Drake Batherson at five is extremely low we know he's not going to be on these lists much longer and just wait he's going to make that position at five look completely bonkers i'll save the rest of my takes for when we put out our list tomorrow for today that's brandon pillar i'm ross levitan this has been the locked on senators podcast your team every day